my name is Maddie and I'm a second year creative producing student at East 15 Acting School in Southend. I've lived here most of my life and absolutely love history. My two friends, Serena and Eli, are not originally from this area but they were keen to find out more. So I sent them on a quest to find out interesting things about Southend and the surrounding areas and thus Hearing Back was born. Over the next couple of weeks we'll each be bringing a topic to the metaphorical table to discuss and find out something new and hopefully interesting. This week I looked into pirate radio. I just kind of thought I'd go back in time to when not just anybody could set up a broadcast on whatever platform. You had to have permission, you had to have licenses and so forth. I found an interesting article in um, the local gazette about pirate radio from July 2003. And just to clarify, pirate radio is an unlicensed radio broadcast intended for general public reception. Yeah. So in, in the early days of pirate radio, it was usually amateur hobbyists and commercial organisations that wanted to plug their business for professional reasons or just trying to, you know, get by regulations to do their own thing or transmit from another country where they thought their the best audience was in a neighbouring country or something like that. So I found the article, July 2003, council officers in Southend took down an aerial and transmitter on the top of Chilton Flats, which is somewhere in the centre of town, Maddie, by yeah. the Queen's Hall. Yes, I know where that is. It's just along from Southern Victoria Station, where the range is kind of yeah. near that, that big okay. shop by the big sorting office and everything. Well, the council had been having a battle with the radio stations and sometimes those kind of illegal radio stations do affect police radio and emergency services and things like that. So that's where the council kind of comes into it, really. So the council were doing their best to try and get rid of pirate radio. And in 2004, there was a documentary based on East London and South End pirate radio. And episode two was called Ghetto on Sea, and it featured Killer and Gambit, who both live in estates in South End, one of whom, Killer, he ran Y2K FM, a radio station that played house and garage music, and it broadcast to Essex and the Thames Estuary. And he had a feud going with a DJ called Funky from Charm FM, a rival pirate station. So the episode really focused in on their feud and um, about how they were <laughs> losing their temper with each other and vying for audiences and such like. You're, you're kidding. Someone named Killer was losing his temper? <laughs> yeah. I wonder it was classical music and chill vibes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Y2K, which was the logo for everybody expecting the world to end in the year 2000. Right. And the rival station with DJ Funky was Charm FM. So you've got Killer going after Charm FM kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Here's hoping Killer doesn't start a podcast and start a feud with us. <laughs> <laughs> That's really what caught my eye. And um, it did sort of 
take me back to the time when radio was all public broadcast and you had the likes of Radio Luxembourg broadcasting outside of their country, gaining listeners in the UK that wanted more current pop and rock music of the time. Mm. That led on to pirate radio on the seas off Essex and Radio Caroline in 1964. And that in itself has sparked off films and stories. Richard Curtis made the film The Boat That Rocked based on Radio Caroline and the escapades of DJs out at sea one of my all-time favorite films i love that film yeah well richard curtis one of my all-time favorite director writers and radio caroline of course they were commercial and introduced a new way of working with the media and to pay to get music to the listeners of the type of things that people wanted not just the classic radio you can remember the good morning vietnam with Robin Williams' film, where he went out to do radio broadcast from Vietnam. And then um, he transformed, if you like, that staid, placid music into Let's Get With It. And Pirate Radio kind of done that for radio listeners back in the 60s and 70s. And a lot of the top DJs on BBC Radio in the 60s and 70s did cut their teeth on those pirate channels, either offshore or Luxembourg Radio. So it's quite interesting to find that those people who broke the law paved the way for new forms of broadcasting and new pop culture. Mm. My yeah, best here's... friend works for um, BBC Essex and a few of the presenters there, at least two or three, I think she said, were actually on Radio Caroline. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's cool. I think um, Radio Caroline, they did come on land and became a proper radio station back in the 80s, I believe. So they started following the rules. But now anybody can set up a podcast and it is difficult to understand that once upon a time people couldn't do what we can do now Maddie, what did you look at this week? I was looking at Hadley Castle. So Hadley is very close to Leon Sea, so it's that kind of area again. And in 1215, King John gave this area of land known as the Manor of Lee, along with many other gifts, to Hubert de Burr, who was his chief minister. And it was not until the time of Edward II, which was nearly 100 years later, that the king actually began to use the castle as a royal residence, because a lot of people actually didn't favour the castle that much. It was Edward III who was the first king to see the castle as a strategic importance because I don't know if you guys have visited Hadley Castle. Um, <laughs> well, the few remains of Hadley Castle. Well, it's always uh, pretty looking at it from the train. So <laughs> Yeah, uh, because it's, it's up on a hill, you've got quite a good view of uh, the estuary. So defence-wise, it's quite a good location. And he actually used it against the French raids during the Hundred Years' War. So after having a succession of owners and tenants, the castle was sold to Lord Rich in 1551, who actually sold it off as building materials. What? You're, yeah. t- you're telling me the castle was bought by literally Lord Rich and the dude dismantled the thing like an evil supervillain and, and sold the building materials. <laughs> yeah. Wow, what a so, jerk. Yeah. Went and the assets of the castle. <laughs> <laughs> um, so during the demolition, a tiled hearth was built into the floor of the hall in order to melt down the valuable window lead. Wow. Yeah. 
I don't know whether he had something against this castle or... Yeah, literally. His name's Mr. Rich. Uh, you know, Dickens visited Essex and, and Lee and Hadley very regularly. So maybe he based Scrooge off Mr. Rich. Maybe. <laughs> that would be interesting. But he yeah. does sound like a, a comic book villain, doesn't he? <laughs> I mean, he's, he's literally called Mr. Rich. <laughs> buys the fun old castle and decides to melt the windows down so he can make a quick buck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pretty much. It did periodically form parts of package properties which were owned by various queens of England. So it was held by Elizabeth Woodville, who was the wife of Edward IV, Catherine of Aragon, who was Henry VIII's first wife, Anne of Cleves, who was Henry VIII's fourth wife, and Catherine Parr, who was Henry VIII's sixth wife bringing it into the modern times. The Olympic mountain biking in 2012 was actually done on the grounds there because of the hilly landscape. Yeah, that is cool. So going back to one of my favourite things is secret tunnels. I love them. (laughs) And I mentioned them (laughs) when we were talking about smuggling and things like that. And I think I briefly mentioned Hadley Castle there. But there are tunnels and one goes from the castle to an inn on the high street... Uh, Hadley High Street, which is about a mile away. And apparently there's always been an inn or a public house and inn on that site. And I'm not sure what's still there now, but I believe it may be a pub of some description. Allegedly, there's also a tunnel from the castle to Rochford Hall, which is four miles away. So I don't know how and when that was built. And another alleged but probably unlikely tunnel was from again from the castle of course to canvey island which is 1.8 miles what yeah but it's it's a straight line and it means that it would be going underneath benfleet creek that's that 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 seems unlikely yeah that's why it's alleged but probably (laughs) yeah going on more of the no side yeah you might as well tell me there's a tunnel that goes all the way to camp Well, who knows? There may have been. I'm not going to say that that never happened. <laughs> um, there's there's um, stories about ghosts from there as well, and that some of those tunnels were built for drainage under the castle, mm-hmm. um, and not, as myth would have it, ways for the clergy to disappear. Oh, um, definitely for mm. secret rendezvous. It, it was, yeah. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm inclined to believe that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, As part of my research, actually, I found a photo from 1978, which was quite cool. And around the castle part has got a gate. And in 1978, they actually charged people to go and visit the Hadley Castle ruins. And they charged 5p per adult and 2.5p per child to go in as an admission fee. That's scandalous. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It's now part of the English heritage um, and it's now all free. So no charging. And there's now a Salvation Army Centre with a cafe, which is just slightly back towards the high street area. And there's also a cute little farm there as well. And in recent years, they've done maze mazes around Halloween time. Oh, yeah. what, like a corn maze? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. And I think that they must have been about seven or eight feet tall. It was massive. And they were really, really popular. But I don't think they've done them in more recent years. Yeah, well, corn mazes are a classic thing to do in, like, Halloween time or Thanksgiving time in the U.S. I guess we probably should have called them maze mazes. That would have made more sense. 
uh, but we call them corn mazes because we're not that smart. Uh, <laughs> um, because I mean, like my home state, Illinois, has like I think it's sixty percent of the land in the entire state that's you know the size of England is taken entirely by cornfield. Really? Yeah. So. What I looked at was actually two of the exhibits that are and were on display in the uh, Southland Planetarium, which is owned by the, the museums in the area. It's like a whole set of museums. I think there's like, because they've got the Beecroft Art Gallery, the Central Museum, Prittlewell Priory, South Church Hall, and the Planetarium. So it's five. The Beecroft used to be in another location. It used to be opposite the Cliffs Pavilion. But because the building is literally falling down and they've just propped <laughs> it up with massive planks of wood, it's yeah. still there, but unoccupied. So they moved it to where the library used to be down Victoria Avenue. And then when they built the forum, that became the new library. So wow. the name already existed in another location. Wow. I didn't know that one. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I just looked into the exhibits at the planetarium. The first of which was uh, they had uh, an Egyptology exhibit there, actually. Two guys, mainly Charles Nicholson, who in 1867 was born in Hadley. And basically, he had a big house in Hadley. And he and his father basically went to Egypt and took back a bunch of antiquities. However you want to look at that, they stole them or they raided tombs or whatever. They were archaeologists. But basically, in 1916, the council purchased his estate, his manor, to save it from demolition. And then they discovered that they basically had this small collection of little antiquities, including like a face mask and several urns and Egyptian jars uh, that they collected throughout their whole life, which is pretty amazing. And it's called the Nicholson Collection. And you can actually go and see it. Okay. Yeah, and they were going to display them this year, oddly enough, but they basically, that's all kind of fallen through with this. It's kind of not the, a great time to go to a museum during a pandemic. Mm -hmm. But basically, he donated over a thousand objects to the University of Sydney, and okay. that's mainly where they are now. So including things like a um, full sarcophagus and several mummified corpses and stuff like that, that he took from Egypt, Italy, and Greece uh, between 1857 and 1858. That's, which is, that's crazy. Just taking them, like, right, that's it. A lot of people know about this, actually, but in Southend, there's the, you know, Britain's answer to Tutankham, which is the Prittlewell Prince, or basically there was a, there was an excavation. There's actually an episode of Time Team that's pretty good if you ever want to watch it. It's an Anglo-Saxon prince or king uh, who they excavated in 2003, who dates back to be around 1400 years old. Wow. Yeah, and is one of the first uh, examples of Christianity in the United Kingdom uh, because they discovered a couple gold foil crosses. And you can actually go to the planetarium and see a reconstruction in a permanent exhibit of it, basically rebuilt to look exactly how the burial tomb originally looked. And it was interesting in that it mixed elements of Christianity uh, in the form of the crosses and how they buried the dead with elements of English and Saxon paganism. So he was buried with weapons and, and in full clothing and with like a whole set of wealth, uh, things that weren't common to Christianity and weren't part of the beliefs. He actually was likely killed because of his beliefs. And later on, Essex basically became the first Christian kingdom in uh, the UK. Oh, wow. Yeah, right? That's really cool. Yeah, and so that's that's my tale of two mummies uh, in South End, one of which being taken from Egypt and the other one of which... Uh, being a local who just happened to survive for 1,400 years underneath the Prittlewell Highway. <laughs> I wonder why it was donated to the University of Sydney, though. 
I think it was to do with the fact that he was a businessman uh, and like doctor who, who said, yeah, he sailed to Sydney, Australia and basically Nicholson the first. So Charles Nicholson's dad lived in Australia when he was young, basically his son was born in Hadley when they came back. I think it was sort of part of their heritage, part of where they grew up, part of where their business was, all that kind of stuff. And it's very strange when you say about archaeologists and um, tomb raiders, for want of a better word, that bring um, the treasures back to the UK. Because they do say if Howard Carter had carried on with his initial excavation of King Tutankhamun's tomb and not stopped and boarded it back up again, that potentially all of those treasures would have ended up in the UK. Because Howard Carter did go back as second time and after he went back the egyptians said sorry you can't take our treasures out of the country anymore they actually made a passport for him anybody listening if you want to go back you can actually look up the egyptian passport of king tut he actually had like a passport photo of his mummified face on the passport (laughs) yeah with his birth date being uh like 1200 bc on the passport He got a visa to enter the United Kingdom and stuff like that. It was hilarious, yeah. Because in theory, he was a person that they needed to move. (laughs) You know, the one person who does not need a passport is the Queen, because they are issued in her name, so she technically doesn't need one. She just rocks up to a border and she's like, I'm the Queen. Look at the fiver. <laughs> Here's a pound coin. Give it a little glance. You can tell the difference. Yeah. <laughs> the queen doesn't carry money with her, so there you go. Someone else provide the fiver then. <laughs> <laughs> the fiver bearer. All of this was recorded on Zoom, so apologies for the mic quality. But thanks for listening, and join us next week to find out what else we discover about Southend.